Hello and welcome to Talking Scared. I'm your host, Neil McRobert, and this week a friend of mine has a story to tell you. Tyler Jones is an author who I think is headed for the big time. He came on the show last year to talk about his first collection, Burn the Plans, stories that blew me away with their imagination and their grasp of voice. And we got on really well, and, and I'm proud to say that he has chosen this show to introduce his new limited release novel, Midas. I say chosen because although this book is a weird amalgam of Western fantasy and gothic, with a ton of violence and a whole slew of mythologies attached, it's actually about something much, much closer to Tyler's heart, his son, Liam. Tyler wants to tell you the rest, and I'm delighted to give him space to do so. Now, there is some deep sadness in the next hour of conversation, but there's a lot of light and a ton of love. And also, I waffle on about ancient aliens and say some things that anyone with an ounce of anthropological insight will no doubt punch me in the face for, but indulge me. Because yeah, this episode is a little different in some ways, and I hope you love it as much as I do. I'm not going to wang on here about the Patreon. If you want to support the show, the link's in the show notes, and I'll give you the details in the afterword. Thank you very much. Keep listening, there's also a giveaway. But now, come with me to a place the maps don't show. There's a castle there, and a very special boy who shines as bright as gold. Let's talk scared. Hey Tyler, big welcome back to Talking Scared. Neil, it is awesome to be back here with you. Thanks so much for having me. Not at all. It feels like a minute since we last spoke. You you came on the show, I had a look, it was February last year, episode 81, to talk about your collection, Burn the Plans. I mean, how have things wow. been in the interim? <laughs> <laughs> things have been great, man. Busy. Uh, yeah, just cracking on, doing what I do. But yeah, it's hard to believe that it's been that long. Yeah. I, I think in weeks now, because I my entire life is structured around this podcast, so everything's in weeks. Um, and then you look at you add those weeks together, and it's like, wow, that's been a long time. Um, but I mean, you, you mentioned being busy, and you are having a busy year. You've recently published a new novel called Midas, and we're going to have probably a very deep conversation about that. You've also got a new novella out in a few weeks called Heavy Oceans, so we'll talk about that too and give everyone something that they can enjoy but I think hopefully we can make this enjoyable whether people have read the books or not that's always the hope for this show that okay by you absolutely right well first though Midas and I know you're kind of nervous to talk about this book as am I for reasons that we will get into imminently Um, and don't worry because you're amongst friends but but first Mm -hmm. can can we start off with a simple intro to the story yeah yeah, so Midas is a we're we're referring to it <laughs> as an epic horror novel. Uh it takes place in, in a version of the old west, which we can talk about later. But it's about a, a former preacher whose young son has died and he's no longer a preacher. And he stumbles across a map and a couple objects in the woods near his house that lead him on a journey to find where this uh where this map leads and what he uncovers is a, is a power or a gift or a curse, if you like, that gives him the ability to do things no one should be able to do. And it turns out that there's also an incredibly violent cult leader who's been searching for this power for years. And those two paths will eventually collide. Yeah. And collide they do in a beautiful sort of orgiastic Fountain of violence. (laughs) (laughs) Right, so I know, you know, there are lots of threads to pull on in this book. You know, there's the Old West, there's Greek myth, to anyone who recognises the word Midas. Uh, There's theology, there's the Gothic, there's lots of stuff. But all of it is secondary to what I know is your personal investment in this story. And I think before we talk about the book, before we talk about this detail or that reference, we need to sort of get to the heart of the book. So 
in whatever way you see fit and are comfortable with, Tyler, can you talk to me about where this story comes from? Yeah. So the the origin of Midas, and this is, you know, I should start out by saying most of the time, Neil, I have very little interest in why a book was written. Mm-hmm. I care about what's on the page mm-hmm. and the story itself. But I knew that after putting this book out there that I couldn't talk about it without talking about why it was written. So without really spoiling anything, uh, you can read about it on the the dust jacket. Uh, the story is about this preacher who's no longer a preacher, and it's because his young son died. And the story came about because I was trying to work through a deep fear that I had. And that fear was that my, I have two sons, uh, that my oldest son would pass away. And the reason for that fear, it's not an abstract thing. It's because um, my oldest son, his name is Liam. He is severely disabled and medically fragile. So he has what's, what's called cerebral palsy. And the cerebral palsy is kind of on a spectrum. So it's, um, what it means is it's disability caused by brain injury. And that can mean or look very different for, for different people. For some, it can mean that uh, one leg is affected. For others, it can mean that they are quadriplegic. And that's, that's Liam's case. So Liam is a quadriplegic. He's nonverbal. He has epilepsy. So he's a very fragile young man. He was born that way. So from the time that he was born, both his, his mom and I, my wife, have carried this very real fear about what his future would look like and what that means for his life and our life and, and how that all plays out. And the, the origins of this book, I should say that, you know, after he was born, there was this, this period of time where it was just this massive adjustment, you know, when you are preparing to, to, to be a parent, preparing to have a new life in your home and take care of it and nurture it and raise it. There's all these hopes and dreams and this, this vision of the future or a future that you think will exist. And then within hours, that's just completely shattered. And you find yourself in this this world that you didn't even know really existed. This place where you're just stumbling around in the dark trying to figure it out and do the absolute best that you can. So yeah, when Liam was born, there was um he was born having seizures. So he the the moment that I first held him, I knew that that something wasn't quite right because he wasn't crying and he was having what appeared to be seizure-like activity. And I, I work in healthcare, so I'm not mm. completely ignorant of what seizures look like. And, you know, without going into all the details, but we went into this period of time of of testing and trying to figure out exactly what was going on. And there was a moment in the hospital after his MRI where the doctor sat us down and showed us the MRI. And I remember looking at his small brain, this image on a screen, and the doctor pointing out what this section meant, that it was damage to his brain. And it meant that the life that we had dreamed of for him no longer existed. And Neil, I, I never thought that like a, a heart breaking had a sound until we sat with that doctor and I looked at my wife and I swear to God, I thought I heard something just cracking inside her chest and and mine as well. So we were new parents with this incredibly fragile child. And I'm going to get to the book here in a moment, <laughs> but it began this, this, this um, journey isn't even the right word. It's, suddenly finding yourself in a in a landscape without a map and we were just doing our best to to figure out who we needed to be in this new place you know and over time we we grew as people as parents and we we learned what he needed and how to take care of him and there was one doctor's appointment in particular and this would have been i don't know 2015 16 maybe where the doctor was talking to us about what Liam's future would look like. And 
the doctor told us what his life expectancy would be. He said that based on the severity of Liam's disability, he probably wouldn't live past 15 years old. And that same kind of world collapsing in on me experience that I had back in the hospital when he was first born happened again. Because it wasn't something that I'd really thought about. I Mm -hmm. couldn't imagine a world without my son in it. And this doctor was basically taking a stopwatch and saying, here's, here's my best guess for, for what the rest of his life would be. I just, I didn't know how to, I didn't know how to process that, man. Hmm. And I spent a lot, a lot of time thinking about that. What, what does that mean? What does that mean for, for him, for, for our family? And I want to take a moment, I think, to to back up and say that I'm I'm talking about Liam and his disability and his his fragileness, his fragility, but there's obviously so much more to him than that because he's an incredibly beautiful, intelligent young man. Um, he uses what's uh, an eye gaze communication device, so it's like a, a computer where it, it has a bar on the bottom of the computer that reads his eye movement, and he uses his eyes like a mouse and can dwell on certain pictures that speak words. He's incredibly social. He's got incredible friends. He's an amazing kid just trapped in this body. So that's Liam. And so sitting in this doctor's office, him telling us how long his life might be, like I I had to reframe what I thought of our future in his life. And I didn't know how to do that. So I thought I need to tell a story. Like I, that's where it started. In fact, if you read the acknowledgments on Midas for Midas, there's um there's a special shout out to Goliath. <laughs> Goliath was a horse <laughs> that was at a camp for for families and kiddos with disabilities that we started going to with Liam when he was very young, and it's um. It's a camp where it's all accessible and they have all these incredible things for kids to do. And so there, there's this big horse named Goliath who is really patient and they would take these kids with all kinds of, you know, physical disabilities while the horse walked through the woods so that the, the child could have the experience of riding a horse. And I was out on my own one morning at this camp, just going for a walk, having my coffee. And it was a really, really foggy morning. And I went out to Goliath's pen and I couldn't see him at first. And all of a sudden out of the fog, this horse comes walking. You know, I see its long face at first, its eyes, its ears, and the head comes emerging from this really thick fog in the, and followed by this, you know, majestic body. And uh, soon I'm face to face with Goliath, just looking at this fog shrouded horse and I had this image just flash into my head of a man having a cup of coffee and watching a horse come out of the fog wearing a saddle, but there's no rider on the horse. I thought, what, what happened to the rider? So I ran back to the cabin and quickly wrote down this idea. And that became the first chapter of Midas. And at that point in time, I had no clue what the story would be or what I was going to be bringing to it or working out through the story. But that's where it started is trying to figure out what it would look like for my wife and I, if our son were, were to die. Well, first off, Tyler, I'm, I'm genuinely kind of honored. I suppose that, that you've come on this show to talk about Liam and, and, and his role in the story um genuinely genuinely honored because it it can't be easy and and I really don't want this to be a sort of grief laden hour of conversation for you you know I don't so there are things yeah. I'm going to ask I'd probably normally do this bit that I'm doing now as an as an edit but we'll just we'll just talk like it's just me and you talking and no one's listening yeah um normally I, I'd ask you know what what I ask but I'm I'm going to interlace I suppose some questions about Liam and and about you know Samuel the, the boy in this story that might be difficult to answer with some questions that have got nothing to do with that that might be easier to answer because I, I want to give you a reprieve rather than just hammer you with 
with with sadness. Do you know what I mean? I do. Yeah. So I don't want it to sound trivial when I switch tack now to a, to a different topic. I'm I'm doing it to instill some balance and and some as I say respite for you. Um, we'll certainly come back to a lot of that. Yeah. No, I totally understand. One of the things I picked up on is that you said, um, you know, n- navigating Liam's life and, and your part in it has been. I think the, you used three words. You said it's a journey through a landscape with no map. And it, it immediately struck me that you've written essentially a, a, a novel, at least the first part, is about a, a fantastical journey through a landscape. And there is a map, but it's a very, you know, it's a very difficult map to follow. Um, mm. do, you, do you think there's a, a sort of reason, whether subconscious or conscious, that you chose the weird West and 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 all of those narrative tropes that come with it as a way of confronting this reality. Yeah, I'm sure there is. You know, in fact, just even your question about <laughs> I, I should say this is really my first time talking in depth about the story mm-hmm. in the book. So a lot of my own thoughts are mysterious to me. So <laughs> I'm I'm thinking out loud. That makes the best interviews, Tyler. Don't worry about that. Yeah. <laughs> But what you said about the map, that I said this was like being in a landscape without a map. But then in this story, I gave the main character a map. But where does it lead him? Does it lead him someplace good or someplace where there's just darkness and pain that follow? And I, you know, unpacking that, I wonder if, in fact, I'm sure of this, that there is no map for how to be okay with the things in life that aren't okay. Mm-hmm. How, how to be okay with, with the tragic, with, with loss, with pain. But there is a pretty clear map on how to not be okay. We've all known those people. Maybe we've even been those people. You know, when tragedy strikes, like, what do you do? Withdraw from family and friends, shut down, start drinking you know, I mean, there's a pretty clear path to follow if you want to not be okay. Mm. But the path to actually be okay with the hard things in life is less clear. And maybe in talking about the book, if Jeremiah, you know, the main character, hadn't followed the map, maybe he and Emma, his wife, would have found a way to be all right. But instead, where we, he follows the map and we end up with everything that follows. Yeah. So to explain for listeners, basically, Jeremiah is the preacher who has experienced the loss of his son and his wife. And, and they, they, they find, well, Jeremiah finds a, a riderless horse and goes into the woods in pursuit of the rider. And he finds something that leads him on a journey. I think that's, we can clarify that for the listeners. Um, and that journey is through a quasi fantastical Old West. And one of the things that really struck me is it's a very, plot-driven novel and um, i mean that in a in a positive way because I, yeah, I like a yeah. plot-driven novel you know sometimes people use plot driven it sounds like you're saying someone can't write and they just got a plot i don't mean that at all it's, no, it's no, got no, a propulsion to it this book you know it's a novel that has you know i've already used this phrase but it is grief laden you know jeremiah is almost paralyzed by grief and i wondered how when you when you when you as as a father were, were tussling with all the emotion wrapped up in this how do you maintain proportion how do you stop your own emotion strangling the story because this could so easily have been a meditation on everything you're feeling without a plot there's a discipline Mm -hmm. somehow in still having a plot to follow how do you do that how do you you know how do you you keep (laughs) literally in storytelling fashion how do you keep going Man, that's a that's a really great question, and I'm I'm grateful that you picked up on that because it's it's layered. There's two layers to it. Number one, I did not want Emma and Jeremiah, the the couple in the in the novel, to be me and my wife. Mm. They are not me and my wife. That was very very important to me. So what I did was my absolute best to take what I felt and give it to someone else almost like an experiment. Like I felt like a scientist um, taking characters and saying, okay, what would it look like if this other couple went through this thing? 
how would they handle it? How would they either be become stronger or how would they fall apart? And that's just the emotion outside the actual plot of what's going on. And I was very aware that I didn't want to overwhelm the story with too much emotion. I, I don't, I didn't want it to be some depressing navel gazing novel, but I think that the discipline, I, that word that you use, that, that's interesting because that's how we have to live. Mm. That's how, I mean, I think anybody who has, knows and loves somebody with either, you know, life-threatening illnesses or severe disability, there has to be a balance. Otherwise you, you become overwhelmed so there, there has to be a point where you're okay, not just okay. That's I mean, even that's a, a word that falls short. You have to find a way to live fully in spite of this thing that's happened or is happening. So I wanted to make sure that that, that came across in the book. I, I didn't want it to just um, to just drag and become this depressing thing. It certainly feels in the very early pages of the book, like Jeremiah, the character, is sort of paralyzed by grief. And then his discovery of the map and the gold. Because, you know, if anyone knows what the word Midas means, knows there's some gold. I mean, it's on the cover of the book, right? Someone's covered in, <laughs> yeah. in gold. Yeah. And he finds this gold and, and, and the gold literally like rattles him temporarily out of his stasis. And on the one hand, it's great because it gives him a purpose and it gives him, you know, momentum. But on the other, there's something hideous in that, isn't there? The juxtaposition of the like the cold thrill of gold taking the place or, or filling the void left by human loss. There's something there's something dark in that. And mm. I wonder, you know, here's a question. How did you first settle on on the Midas myth as a component of this story? Yeah, I'm gonna answer that question and then come back or also answer the question you asked earlier that I didn't answer which was how did i settle on the old west mm. and those two those two go hand in hand so i'll answer one and then the other so the the old west aspect of it i wanted this to be a story that um that took place in a time without technology that took place in a time that felt timeless i guess and i i i think that this story could almost work just as well if it were set in a medieval village. Mm. So it was a conscious effort to make sure that it wasn't too Western. Like, so it takes place in the old West, but I don't think of it as a Western because you don't have the swinging saloon doors, you know, and the gun toting stranger, you know, all, all the stuff that we think of with Westerns, it's sort of there, but also not. So transporting the Midas myth the idea of a, a power that could transform anything to gold is obviously connected to Midas, but where I was coming at with that particular power was was more um, ancient than that even. So in the Bible, in the story of Noah and Noah's Ark, there's, there's an interesting character who's Noah's grandfather. Um, his name is Enoch. And according to the Bible, he's the only person who never died because it, the Bible says that he was snatched up. He was caught up by God. And there's an apocryphal book of Enoch, which is incredibly fascinating for anybody. Are you familiar with that, the book of Enoch? So I've just sort of sat back with a big grin on my face here. Did you? Um, <laughs> I'll, I'll I'll get into it. Carry. I'm familiar with the book of, of Enoch, um, and it's okay. It's it's attendant law, but I'll carry on talking. So it's not about me. <laughs> okay. So in in the book of Enoch, it it bridges the gap between the Genesis account of the flood and how that came to be. So the idea is this: that God positioned watchers, um, which were angels essentially, to watch over humanity. This young newly created race, you know, or, or species on planet earth. And over time, the watchers began to interact with the humans and to even have children with them, which were giants, which is how we get later on in the Bible, Goliath. So Goliath was the product of uh, the union between uh, an angel and a human. But there's a, there's a section in the book of Enoch that talks about these watchers coming down and teaching humans things that they shouldn't know 
how to make weapons, ast- astrology, uh, even even suggestions of powers that were like similar to sorcery, how to manipulate matter and things like that. And so that has always really fascinated me just from a storytelling perspective that you've got these cosmic forces interacting with mankind and shaping its future. And so the, the whole plot of Midas is really uh, centered around that idea that these, that there were dark gods in the past who taught humans things that they shouldn't know. And that this gift, this power was one of those things. So the title Midas is a bit of a misdirection a little bit, Mm -hmm. but there's obviously some of that in there as well. But I was primarily coming at it from this different direction while simultaneously uh, giving a nod to the Greek myth. Yeah. And I wholeheartedly applaud any novel that plays with the idea of like a pre-Diluvian mythology, you know, any, any kind of yeah. like lost epoch from before the flood just floats my boat. Like there's kind of, there's a weird pun in that, but you know what I mean? I, yeah. um, <laughs> you I, and me I, both, I, man. Oh, uh, and for me, I mean, I've said this before on the show and it, it it's, it's when I say this out loud to like thousands of listeners, it, it runs the risk of me end up in a padded room. Um, but I love the, <laughs> the ancient alien thing. You know, that whole... Oh, yeah, like, man. It's silly. It's silly, but I do love it. It's silly, but awesome. <laughs> yep. I always have to caveat that a lot of people that you actually believe it are massive racists who think that, you know, native cultures can't build things. But that caveat aside, I um, I, I love the, 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 con- the sci-fi concept of it. And that's where I know the Watchers from. Because it's often mm. when you get these kooks who start looking for, so you know trace evidence in biblical stuff for, for weirdness in the past they often settle on the watchers as as if they were aliens that came then and taught us in this promethean way how to do stuff and i love it and i yeah. love that you reference it um and i love that you build this weird amalgamation of of mythologies because there's a villain that we haven't mentioned yet a, a sort of mm. an even darker ying to to jeremiah's yang called solomon who was been on kind of a Lovecraftian journey prior to the book through the the Mayan temples, and he's found old knowledge, and it, um, and mm-hmm. now he wants what Jeremiah has. And I really like how you just construct, just in a few allusions, this idea that before everything we've written down in our biblical or, or you know religious or even mythical text, there is a, a, a deeper truth that infiltrates all of those things that's such a cool idea for for the Mm -hmm. basis of a horror story yeah that stuff fascinates me it fascinates me too in fact one of if i think too much about it it just drives me nuts that (laughs) the true history of the world is something that i don't think we'll ever know there's this story that's that's taken place of our origins our history of civilizations that have risen and fallen that it makes me wish that we could somehow see it, that we could know it for certain, you know, that there wouldn't, we would make a discovery that would put all debate to rest and we could just say, this is how it happened. These are the cultures that came and went. And these are the people, you know, whether it's the Neanderthals or the Denisovans or, you know, it's all so fascinating to me Mm. through, through all the, the various cataclysms that have taken place on planet earth and buried various cultures, you know, and then we dig things up and find out that, wow, things are even older than we thought, you know, seafaring people, what are, what's really under the canopy in the Amazon? I mean, all the, all, we're learning more, obviously with LIDAR, we're, we're finding evidence of, of extensive cultures and cities, but there's still so much to be discovered. And of course, you know, archaeologists and scientists will argue about it until the end of time but there's some part of me that just wants to know how exactly did it all happen yes exactly exactly you want to take like not even a bird's eye view but i don't know a, well you know, a god's eye view basically and see the entire yeah, yeah. tapestry yeah yeah like I, a time lapse you know what what is what does everything carved in a temple mean what do all because we look <laughs> at these images and we're like oh that that guy clearly looks like an astronaut <laughs> you know but what is yeah. what were they drawing what did it mean to them? Where did all the legends come from? Exactly, right. I always had this thing about, like, why do we all look up? Why in 
So I won't say all because I, I don't know. There's probably a, a ma many exceptions that prove the rule. But why do we all look up for good and down for bad? You know, why is why is hell down and heaven is up? Yeah, all right. There's the sun and the sun brings nourishment and energy and crops and all that. But the sun also does some terrible things, right? So even yeah. that baseline connective tissue through cultures fascinates me and and deep yeah. in my mind when i've had like one or two whiskeys and i'm really giving free reign to my brain part of me does think <laughs> yeah yeah it's because of aliens right <laughs> <laughs> has to be yeah <laughs> you know but that's an interesting point and i i i wonder sometimes neil if there's a psychological component to that where looking up is to look away from yourself and looking down is you. Oh, yeah. You're looking at the, the selfishness. And that's where bad comes from, man. That's mm. where darkness comes from. So when you're looking up, it's like considering that there's there's your place in something much larger, which is a more selfless way of looking at the world and your place within it. Uh, yeah, that is, that is fascinating, Tyler. Yeah, we're looking away from ourselves. That's... I'm intrigued by that. There's this. This is why this stuff fascinates me. You and I could probably talk for like four hours about this stuff, and it would do absolutely no service <laughs> to your novel. But to stick with this theme, theme a minute about you know watchers and history older than history and time older than us. There's a really enigmatic entity. I won't say character, sort of figure that haunts the margins of Midas, and mm -hmm. it's this wolf. And at times. He seems to function as a symbol of death, though he himself says he is much older than that. Um, he at one point refers to himself as a watcher, um, which we've covered. He's just incredibly enigmatic. He's neither good nor evil. He's just a force unto himself. And from my own personal curiosity, can you just clarify a bit about him? What is he to you? Yeah, yeah. So he goes back to... Um the idea of the watchers as well. Mm. So there's within some branches of Jewish mysticism, there's this theory about the giants, the race of giants that, that came upon the earth as the result of the union between watchers and, and humans. And the theory goes like this, that when the flood came and the watchers died, or I'm sorry, that the giants were killed because they were not created by God. They didn't have a soul necessarily. Like they had a spirit, but it had no place to go because it wasn't God's creation. It was just stuck in limbo on earth. And the theory goes that when you see later on in the Bible examples of uh, people possessed by an evil spirit, that there's a difference between being possessed by an evil spirit and possessed by a demon. So a demon being a fallen angel, an evil spirit being this homeless spirit that has nowhere to go, which is why they are obsessed with possessing bodies because they used to have a body and now they don't. So that you see that in, um, there's the, the story of the, the man who was possessed by, a number of evil spirits so much so that when you know jesus asked the the name uh the evil spirit said we are legion and then you know they were cast into a bunch of pigs yeah so it's like they they just wanted to be inside a body of some kind and so i wonder if that is what the wolf is is it an example of a spirit that is possessing various forms throughout history, continuing to nudge people in certain directions for its own purposes. I love when authors say, I wonder. <laughs> I mean, it's so cool that you, you yourself don't fully know. Okay. Yeah, no, the wolf. The wolf is an intriguing figure. I kept thinking, Will, this is really trivial, but I kept thinking of the Gamore from The NeverEnding Story. Yeah, yeah. You know, that, that weird wolf-like creature. That's what I kept seeing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, we've, we've talked a lot about older religions here. Again, it's the wrong word. Well, no. We talked about the, the, the place where mythology and religion come together, I suppose. There may be a word for that. I don't know. Um, but religion does play a really significant place in this book. Now, and I have, just to clarify, 
um, just to say, I've got a work experience student working with me for a week on this show. Um, she's called Karma, which is actually quite fitting considering your story. <laughs> as, as one of her tasks, I asked her to read your book and put some questions together, and she did so brilliantly. Um, and one of the things she picked up on is the theme of faith in Midas, because Jeremiah was a preacher until he lost his son, uh, and then he lost his faith, and he refers to God as a thief. So he doesn't lose faith that God exists, just that he has a plan that's worth anything. It may be a difficult question, Tyler, I, I don't know what your kind of religious stances or your spiritual stance but does any of that reflect how you felt in recent years you know once <clears throat> once liam was born we became really involved in the the disability community in our home of portland oregon and met a lot of families and a lot of kids in similar situations and we have seen the absolute spectrum of families thriving in circumstances that are difficult and families absolutely falling apart. We've known many, many families who have lost their kids. It's, it happens around us all the time. And I have seen so much human um, pain and suffering. And something that I've thought a lot about in the years since Liam was born was it's an old joke that the only certainties in life are death and taxes, mm -hmm. but it's 100% true. I think in our culture, we really do our absolute best to insulate ourselves from death. Like it's a thing that's not going to happen to us until we're old. And it's just an absolute shock to some people when it happens to those who are younger or to family members. It's just something that, that, I think a lot of our society would rather push to the side and not think about. And I've seen how that leads to some really, really, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Some really difficult um, realizations. Mm -hmm. So, and part of that is people blaming God. You know, if, if you do have somebody, it, it's funny how even those without f any sort of faith will often blame God when something goes wrong for whatever reason. It's a, uh, I don't know if it's like a, an awareness, like this psychological moment of clarity in which they realize how small we are in comparison to this, this universe in motion. And that throughout human history, we have, people have been born and people have died. And somehow we try not to think about the fact that we will soon at some point be among their number. And so there's this really, this um, running away from this fact that's forever chasing us down. And I, I've, I've seen people, people I've known blame God for what's happened. And as I thought about that, it occurred to me that it was a, is a really sad, uh, I guess, just human, human reality that we need someone to blame when things go wrong. And maybe the truth is, this is just the way the wheels turn. And we have to accept that. We have to be able to look at our lives in the light of death. Because if we accept that this is something that is going to occur at some point, either to, well, yes, to us and to people we love, then how then do we live? If it's not the fault of anybody, but it's just the way things go. How do you how do you live with that? How does it how does it affect your life? How does it affect the choices that you make? How you spend your time? How you interact with people? And so that's a huge part of it is just trying to look at what is it like when someone refuses to accept the reality of death and instead blames some other power for it. Yeah. I'm glad you said there the phrase refuses to accept the reality of death because if it's all right about you, I'm going to acknowledge a detail of the book. Yeah. Because there is a, basically through various plot machinations and, and magical devices, um, Jeremiah and Emma are able to bring the, the, the lost son Samuel back in a, in a certain form. 
Um, and I mean, for, for, first thing I'll say actually is for me, the most affecting part of this book, and it made me quite overcome with emotion, possibly because I know some of the context that you've already explained, but um, are these these short sections that you write from Samuel's point of view post resurrection? Um, when you were talking earlier about Liam and his physical barriers and limitations, and you talked about you know the use of his eyes to communicate, that that makes yeah. certain aspects of of Samuel, the boy in this book, it makes certain aspects of of his characterization incredibly poignant. Those sections where it's written from Samuel's point of view are so affecting, and mm-hmm. I, I kind of want to say, really, there's not really a question is um taylor i just want to say sort of kudos for finding a way to give a non-verbal character communication you know what i mean mm-hmm. and also for yeah. what must have been such a difficult thing it must have been so difficult because i imagine you were i imagine you sitting there imagining how it is to be liam sometimes and, and, and it's difficult to communicate and and to be in discomfort and you just you put it on the page so profoundly Sorry, I don't have a more articulate question. I just found those no, passages incredibly moving. Thank you for that. Yeah. I mean, looking at it now, I see that it does absolutely represent my heart as a father to to my wish that I could get inside his head mm. and see exactly what he thinks and what he feels. And I have to be cautious that I don't um, project onto him my own thoughts and fears and feelings. Um, You know, the older that he's gotten, the more that he is participating in his healthcare decisions as well. Um, It's been a really fascinating experience to, to discuss with Liam his own health. Every decision that's made can have further consequences down the line. And so, you know, Liam's, he's 14 years old right now. Um, and so we have him participate in these decisions and it's a lot of yes or no questions, but he um, is actively engaged in the conversation and then answers through whatever means he can. Sometimes if he's too tired, it's just um, he'll do some facial expressions that mean yes and no. Mm-hmm. And so we have him participate in this. So when I wrote those sections, I, I haven't even really thought about it, Neil, but I, I think it does represent this subconscious desire to, to, to like swim inside his own consciousness and find out exactly what he's thinking. And it's a beautiful thing because you you, you find something. I mean, all right, Samuel the character is experiencing. It's not great what he's going through, but there's a beauty in the fact that you find a way to, to. Um, Create articulation where there is no external articulation. That's always how I would put it, mm. you know. And it, it's, yeah. I just think, yeah. I, I, I was, I, I, they, I was reading those passages, and I could feel my breathing change. And I always mm. think that is a real indicator of when a piece of writing is affecting me. That I feel my, my literal inhalation change pace. I love that. I love that. Yeah. And I was concerned. I was truly concerned how those would work within the narrative. And I almost cut them out. And I'm really glad that I didn't. You know, and, and on that point, I should say that this, this book also was, was written in conversation with Pet Cemetery. Yes. And yes. by that, I mean, I, I've always loved that book. And even the movie you know, when I was younger and I saw the movie, it had an enormous impact on me, but I wanted, I wanted to approach it from a slightly different way. So that book was, you know, we've all heard King talk about the origins of that book and that classic parental fear of your child dying unexpectedly. And I read the book again after Liam was born and realized it didn't land with me like it did before I was a parent before I was a parent to Liam. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that that robs the book of any of its power at all. I don't mean to suggest that. I still think it's a remarkable, remarkable novel. But I started thinking, what would that story look like if that wasn't an abstract idea? 
this fear wasn't just something that you hope doesn't happen, but a very potentially a very real possibility. What does that look like? And so part of including um, those chapters from Samuel's perspective was I wanted to make sure, damn sure, that he wasn't seen as a villain, that he wasn't seen as something evil. And I, I was concerned that if those chapters weren't present, that a reader might project and think that this this version of the child was evil because of Pet Cemetery. Well, can I make a comparison? And please do not take offense at this. Please. <laughs> I won't. <laughs> in, 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 well, no, because it comes freighted with years of misconception, what I'm about to say now. But all I could think about reading those passages, I got the Pet Cemetery relationship. I kept thinking about Frankenstein mm-hmm. because people who haven't read Frankenstein think the monster is a monster because they don't know that he has an internal life and a beautiful internal life. He He's right. literary. He, you know, and Mary Shelley so cleverly gives us a window into uh, the creature's internal life. Yes. Yes. And you did exactly the same. And I think, you know, that it, it's so important because we live in a culture that, you know, we we do so easily demonize and monsterize people and, that are different. And it's only the internal that unites us, you know. And I think giving, giving that window into Samuel's soul is so important in the way that it was important to give to give the creature um, a, 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 a yeah. lovely interior nature, you know. Um, yeah, no, I, I agree 100%. And I think that that novel, Frankenstein, can be a beautiful example of or metaphor for people with disabilities. Yeah. And that's that's something that I've seen countless times is that we live in a strange culture particularly in America where I can go out with my son and and he's a beautiful I mean handsome <laughs> handsome young man but a beautiful soul and still people will stare. You know, you'll see looks of like I don't even know how to describe it. It says more about the person looking at him than anything, but it's a mm. look of, I don't know. I don't know how to, the right way to describe it. Disgust seems like too simple a word. Like but discomfort. Sh- discomfort. That's, yeah. Yeah. That's the right way to put it. I used to work for a charity, uh, Tyler, promoting the rights of people with disabilities. Um, mm. It really made me, one, realize, other, I became very comfortable you know, in the the presence of and in engaging with people with all manner of disability. But I also became very, very aware of other people's discomfort when I was in those situations. It's a thing I've seen a thousand times myself. And it, it, yeah, it's... Yeah, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's unique. It's, It's a really unique thing where, I mean, people don't even act like that with animals. You know, nobody acts like that with a dog, no matter how, <laughs> how ugly the dog is, you know, and, and here you see a, another human being getting looked at that way. It's really, it's really unique. And maybe it says something about our, our culture, generally speaking, that there is that level of discomfort. And that's why it was always so important to my wife and I that Liam be in uh, class with his peers as he goes through school. You know, rather than than somewhere as part of a special needs class, which I, I know that those have their place, but it was so important for us that he be in a regular classroom with his peers, not mm. just for Liam, but for all the other kids there, because he may be the only one that they get to know who has a disability. And I hope that as they grow up and they go on with their lives, that when they're adults and they're out and they see someone in a wheelchair or someone with any variety of disability that they will remember Liam and that they will interact with this person with kindness and compassion. Yeah. Cause it's a, you a really unique group of people who need society to, to help them participate, you know, particularly those with physical disabilities or nonverbal, like they are relying on not to say that they don't have agency, but it's unique in that sense, you know, like my son can't get around and 
unless somebody pushes his wheelchair. It's a social contract, right? Yeah, it is a social contract that we're all part of. We often talk as a society about compassion, like, oh, we need to have compassion for for this group or that group or this person. And no one talks about how compassion is made or created, you Mm -hmm. know, like it just appears out of nowhere. Like, why aren't you more compassionate? Well, maybe no one's had the opportunity to interact with somebody who's not like them. And with Liam, you know, I, I always, I love kids. I love kids who will come up because adults will stare with that look of discomfort yeah, and a kid yeah. will just walk right up and go, what's wrong with him? Yeah. And I love that. I love that honesty because yeah. it's, it's like a, hey, let me tell you. In fact, well, there's, a weird, um, there's a there's a dignity in that, right? There's a dignity in yes. a child in the, it, it, the an adult an adult's look of like pity, contempt, whatever you want to talk about, just strips from the person. Where the child takes nothing from the person in their question. Yeah, yeah, that's so true. That's a perfect way to put it. And you know, every every time Liam goes to a new school, um, in the past, we've we've gone into his classroom and done like a presentation. Just a fun, simple, no, no, uh, you know, no downer stuff, but just, this is Liam. This is who he is. Um, here's what his needs are. Like he breathes through a, um, through a trach and he uh, needs frequent suctioning and he eats through a tube in his stomach. So we explain all these things to kids just so that they're aware, like, Hey, here's, here's Liam. Here's who he is. Here's what he likes. And here's what his needs are. And every single time, it is just a phenomenal experience where these kids are like, oh, yeah, cool. They accept it. No problem. In fact, afterwards, he makes so many friends afterwards, like some of them lifelong friends. Like they see him as a person rather than a disability. No, I, I completely get it. I Going back to the book, like the, the, the way that you write Samuel's character, and I'm obviously I'm not making the point here that it's a complete avatar just in the way that you are not jeremiah you know i'm sure that liam is not samuel in that way but there is obviously you're dealing with some things there and and i think yeah you giving samuel that 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 giving us that window into his character it's so important to the book it's you know it's probably less than a few hundred pages but for me it's what made the book absolutely sing um Hmm. and well i'm so glad you picked up on that yeah, I loved it. Um, the last question I'm going to ask you about Midas, it's a kind of fun question, this. And again, it's it's an observation that Karma, my work experience kid, made. Uh, I didn't even pick up on this. So if she's right, then absolute kudos to her. But she spotted that in a book about, or at least a book that features gateways to another world, you give the characters the surname Pevensey. <laughs> And she wants to know if you are intentionally kind of connecting to Narnia. <laughs> it was it's a it's a nod. Yes. Yeah, she caught it. Yeah, there you go, Karma. That that one absolutely nice shot. Good my, catch. Yeah. What a catch. Yeah. But there's also there is also like um you say it's a nod. I, I think there is a, a an optimism in that because there is the other world that if, maybe that's a strange, but the, 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 Jeremiah goes through a, a kind of portal to get to a place to do something. Um, but there is also the idea of the other world being wherever, wherever Samuel has been in between his death and his resurrection. Mm. He's been somewhere else and the word heaven is never used at all. Um but to me, and, and this might be the hardest question for you to answer, Tyler, I, I do apologize if it, if it upsets you. But for me, there is a real hope enshrined in this idea of another better place away from the, you know, away from here and, and the, the pain that can be here. There's, there's a hope in that. And I wondered if that was an intentional thing or a thing you picked up on. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Absolutely. It's impossible not to to think about that. And, you know, we, we're getting into territory that can divide people and that's mm. fine. I mean, whatever. <laughs> I think that we all have to, we all have to find what gives us hope mm-hmm. and believing 
or hoping that this is not the end for us is a beautiful thing. And I like to, um, I like to, to think that that's true, that what we do here matters and that someday that the pain of that maybe that maybe death is the beginning. Yeah. I mean, none of us know for sure, obviously, but it's, um, yeah, it's a beautiful thing to hope for. And to, and, and even, even to live like it's true, maybe because it's, mm-hmm. it's connecting. Like you talk about looking up versus looking down that I'm choosing to look up at something bigger and, um, more beautiful than just me and, what I'm experiencing. I don't know. Connecting, connecting to something much larger. Can't argue with you. I, I used to say that the only thing I miss or the only thing I feel like I miss out on through being an atheist is the, the solace of thinking I will see people I love again. Um, Mm -hmm. But I don't know what's happened in recent years. I've certainly not become any less atheistic. I've not become a touch more religious, but maybe since I got married and we have these big changes in our life, maybe since I got married, there is a kernel in me now that's like, no, maybe, you know, I love someone this much. Maybe it is just, you know, chemicals in my brain, but (laughs) maybe it's not, maybe it's something else. And maybe, maybe, you know, just, just maybe, I suppose that's as far as I can reach maybe, but maybe contains a universe of hope when absolutely not contains none of it. So I'm happy to, I'm happy to think maybe and not feel like I'm having to worry about gods and things like that. Just, just, just maybe. (laughs) That's a beautiful way to put it. Yeah. Tyler, we've talked for an hour. We haven't touched on, on um, heavy oceans. And I feel like to do so now would be so underwhelming for, for you, for me, for the listeners. Um, I think we should, leave it here because it's been a lovely complete conversation um would that be okay with you yeah that's totally fine with me i um i will talk about heavy oceans in the outro because it's a great novella that deals with all kinds of quite insane cosmic imagery um, <laughs> i i read it in like one sitting this morning um <laughs> that's awesome. it's got really scary fish in an upside down ocean and I'll talk more in the outro, but yeah, it feels wrong to tag it onto the end of such a such an emotional conversation. So, um, let's just yeah, that, that let's just great. yeah, let let's just say right that I I've read this book. It means even more to me now that I've heard your story, and I just loved hearing about Liam because he sounds mm. great, you know. And and I'm, I'm I just wish you. And him and your other son, Quinn, and, and your wife, I, w- I wish you all the best. And I hope as many people as possible can get their hands on a copy of Midas and read it. Well, thank you for that, Neil. Yeah, y- yeah. you're right. He is he's an amazing kid, uh, living an amazing life. You know, And I think that he's uh, having an incredible impact on a lot of people. Yeah, and I thank you so much for the opportunity to discuss him and the book and the story. And yeah, like you said, um, there are still some copies available. So it is a limited edition, but um, it through Earthling Publications. And if you go to the Earthling site, there are still some available. So I, hopefully some will be able to, to pick it up mm-hmm. and check it out. And I have, I'm deciding this now on the fly. I have my proof copy next to me um, and I will do a giveaway globally so that someone else can get their hands on this book because there's no point me hoarding it here when I've read it (laughs) and someone else could read it. So, yeah. Amazing. I'll do that. If you're hearing this now and it's within a few days of the episode coming out, go to Twitter or Instagram or whatever. I'll put details out. Um, But Tyler Jones, it's always an absolute pleasure to speak to you. Um, everyone go back and listen to Tyler's previous episode in episode 81 and, and read his collection, Burn the Plans. I, I made it one of my, you know, books of the year for a reason. Um, but, but for now, Tyler, just thank you so much for talking scared. Thank you, Neil. Okay. Uh, I hope you enjoyed that. Um, 
When Tyler first reached out to me about recording this episode and covering Midas, he explained that he wanted to tell Liam's story once, and then thereafter he'd be able to refer to this conversation, rather than going through it again and again whenever he was talking about this book. And, you know, I was happy to oblige, because I, I think Tyler's a phenomenal writer, um, but he's also a great guy, and, and what's the point of having a podcast if you can't indulge your friends once in a while? I only hope we did justice to Liam, because I was nervous and we were both emotional, and I don't think it comes across that much in the recording, but my voice was trembling when when Tyler said that thing about the sound of a heart breaking, I nearly lost it. Overall, though, listening back, I think the entire conversation is a full-hearted celebration of life, not not a lament, and that's exactly as it should be. I'm genuinely honoured to have been the person that Tyler spoke to about this. The book, on the other hand, is much darker, right? It's a whole mad concoction of ingredients. We didn't even get to the Gormenghast-style castle that Jeremiah never stops building. It's like an even more gothic Winchester house. The story zigs and zags all over the place, like quest fantasy, western high gothic, cult horror. It's spinning all these plates. But at its heart is all the emotion and the scenes between Emma and the, her resurrected son, Samuel, and, and particularly those vignettes from Samuel's perspective, they brought me very close to tears when reading. I'm only sorry the book is a limited release, because I'd love more people to read it, and, and here's hoping it gets the same treatment as Phil Fracassi's Boys in the Valley and goes on to a wider publication. I do apologise for featuring a book you can't just go and buy, but I did my best to make the conversation interesting to everyone, whether you've read the book or not. And I think, you know what, I think we did that. Um, but like I said, I'm going to do a giveaway. And to make sure the giveaway is fair and that it goes to people who have put the time in, I'm going to do the entry rules here and now. That way, only you people know about it and it doesn't go to one of those annoying fuckers who lurk on social media only to enter competitions. They are the worst. So, if you want to win my red but well-looked-after copy of Midas, just go to Instagram or Twitter and, and retweet or share the post that I release about the episode. Use the hashtag GiveUsMidas. I'll collate the entries manually and I'll pick a random winner. And to repeat that, I want you to reshare or retweet the episode logo post with the hashtag Give us Midas. Oh, and, and you can find me on Twitter and Insta at TalkScaredPod, if you didn't know. Now, I did say I'd talk about Tyler's other recent release, Heavy Oceans. It's very different. It's a kind of glorious blue-collar pulp that reads like a Steinbeck novella that sails off into Jeff Vandermeer country. I ripped through it in one day. The plot is basically this. A small group of guys in Hawaii get themselves in a criminal pickle and have to take to the sea to dispose of a body. And when they get there, they find a literal hole in the ocean. And inside that hole, nothing good awaits. It's creature feature-tastic. It's rem reminiscent of Kings the Mist in parts. It'd make a fantastic movie because the entire thing is orchestrated around these remarkable set piece images. And it's out in early December and I do recommend if you like novellas and want a bit of fishy, squirmy fun, get your hands on a copy. Um, if you want to support Talking Scared, you can do so by signing up to Patreon at patreon.com slash talkingscaredpod or go through the link in the show notes or use the button on the website all contributions are hugely emotionally welcome and you get loads of bonus stuff to boot, like loads and loads of extra talking by me and others. And most of it is scared. <laughs> and speaking of support, I do want to say a big thank you to Karma, who spent the week learning about the rigours of podcasting and publishing and interviewing with, with me as part of her work experience week from school. She put together some questions for this episode that so closely mirrored what I'd planned that I'm now thinking I could just take quite a lot of time off. <laughs> I 
And she gave me a primer on TikTok and Instagram reels that may revolutionise my social media approach. Have you seen my uptick in, in Instagram reels? That's because of karma. Yeah. So thank you, karma. And if anyone else out there has a young person who would benefit from a week's guidance from me, the most ill-equipped podcaster in the land, <laughs> well, I plan to offer the opportunity one week of every year. And I'll update you when that chance is reopening. Right. This has been a long outro because I had a lot to say, but it's time to go. I'm back next time for Dino Week here on Talking Scared with Luke Dumas as my guest and the paleontologist as the book in question, and what a charming horror novel that is. Until then, watch the skies, love as well as you can, and keep your mind open for the maybe. Read good books, and remember, it's good to be scared. <laughs>